And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Well, good morning. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, Garden Columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the talking and ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at twitter.com slash Farmer Fred. Daily garden tips, lots of snark. And what else? Oh, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where there is always a garden dialogue going on. And uh, good pictures there of shot hole bore damage that is ruining trees in Southern California to the tune of one third of the trees of Southern California may be killed by a disease that that insect is vectoring. And the problem is, if you go down south for the holidays and come back up with a load of firewood, you might be bringing that problem up here. So don't move any firewood around the state. Thank you very much. Your trees, thank you. Speaking of trees, Pam Bone is here, the original Sacramento County Master Gardener, former urban forester. Aren't you still an urban forester? I call myself a landscape horticulturist now. Oh, okay. Yes. But you used to be an urban forester. Yes, I did that for the university. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're talking trees today. Yes, that's good. Right. Oh, okay. I see the connection. Yes. The yeah. the, the fungus among us yeah. and, and all that. I mean, yes, there are bugs that attack trees, but probably there are more diseases that attack trees, especially through the root system. Yes, there um, well, through the root system, yes, that's true. Above ground, too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of diseases that are not caused by a an actual pathogen like a fungus or a bacteria or right. something like that. Actually, sometimes the number one <clears throat> disease of trees right now or problem to trees are people and the way they prune them. So I want to talk about that today. Well, that was uh, I was going to bring that up that here here in uh, Garden Talk Show Radio Land, we often say that this is an easy show to do because if you just say, well, there's a watering issue, you're right 90% of the time. That's true. Either, it's either too much water or too little water. Yeah. And a lot of diseases can be due to having soggy soil. Yes, exactly. That's true. No doubt about it. And, um, of course, we're seeing a lot of problems with trees due to the drought and effects that may have occurred two or three years ago are just now showing up. And then that's leading to issues where I'm getting a lot of calls at the Cooperative Extension Office. We answer the Master Gardener phones, and people are um, calling about trees that are dying back now, and they want to top them or prune them severely to take out the deadwood, particularly with um, redwoods. So you're taking a problem that was because of the drought, but then it's becoming a problem due to the way now that you might prune it or take care of it later that then could be a problem for safety and hazardous conditions later. So even though we may be entering another drought right now, we just don't realize it yet. Hopefully not. A lot of people think, oh, the drought's over. It rained so much in the last 12 months. Everybody will be better. The trees will get better. Well, maybe a whole other set of problems if it's slow-draining soil, if it's muddy soil, and that tree has gone from the stress of a drought to the stress of waterlogged roots. Oh, definitely. Actually, I will use an example. In I, I talk about this all the time to people um, because we get calls that my tree just up and died overnight. Um, it basically, I went out there one day, it was alive and it's dead. We hear that with fruit trees quite a bit, mm-hmm. and especially in the spring, um, younger trees. 
because of waterlogged soils. And landscape trees are no different. But in my case, I had a persimmon tree that was about 32 years old, and it was a featured tree on last year's Master Gardener Gardening Guide and Calendar. Hmm. And I walked out one day, and I look up at this rather large tree. We grew it um, as a shade tree, plus it was absolutely loaded with persimmons. It was the hachia one, the big ones oh, that yeah. have to be soft. <laughs> the when one you, eat you can't them. eat. <laughs> well, you can bake and cook with them. They're okay. great. And then you can eat them like dipping into pudding, um, basically, when they become really soft. It was a beautiful tree. It had pounds and pounds and pounds of, um, of fruit on it year after year. And I looked out there, and the whole tree had leafed out in the summer, spring and had started to develop, and probably the leaves were maybe half developed, and they were all limp. The, mm. every, the whole tree, limp. Went and looked. I am on an irrigation system that only waters twice a month, or actually sometimes only less than that. Like uh, now. And this was, in the, this was in late winter, early spring. Actually, it was early spring. I think it was April. And... So the irrigation system hadn't even been turned on yet. So I wasn't watering. And it was watered during the drought. We watered even less frequently. Um, so this was not a, a, a soil condition where, or wasn't a condition where we were watering too frequently ourselves. But we have a heavy clay soil. And down deeper into the reaches of the soil, the soil doesn't dry out when we get, what we'd get last year? How much rain did we get? It was a record-setting year for how much rain and that tree sat waterlogged in that poorly drained soil. And so 32 years of watering that tree correctly and putting it on a drip microspray system and only watering a couple times a month was all negated. And the symptoms, why did it look like it was just the first thing that people look at is they go, oh, it's it's out of water. It needs a drink of water. And I knew, of course. I, the minute I saw it, I went, oh, no. Oh, no, it's root rot. Because the tree then had fungus in the soil or a lack of oxygen or mm-hmm. both. Which can uh, lead to that. Which leads then to the fact that the roots can't operate properly. And the tree can't take up water. And it looks like it's dying of drought, but it's just got so much water in the ground. And so we actually drug up. I had my husband literally dig up the entire trunk. And I excavated around it and looked at it, and we sent it to the state lab so that I could get an accurate diagnosis of it. And sure enough, it was a specific kind and a different kind of phytophthora than we normally have. It was a kind of a rare one. But um, there it was, root rot, wood rot. Yeah, phytophthora, just one of the many soil-borne diseases that uh, can affect many species, tree right. species in our area. And uh, what mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize is that in the springtime, uh, late winter, early spring, mm-hmm. uh, when it rains and the wind blows, the spores from that can spread from tree to tree as well. It's not just going underground. Yeah, it's. but the thing is, is that you have to have, for any disease to develop, you have to have a suitable host, mm-hmm. an environmental condition has to be just right, and then the pathogen has to be there. And so obviously for 32 years, not a problem at all. And then all of a sudden you have a condition where Phytophthora must have been in the soil there somewhere, sitting there, lying there until whatever, 
uh, came along just the right environmental conditions for Well, it. that's true with a lot of soil-borne diseases mm-hmm. like verticillium wilt, mm-hmm. too. Where, it can be there yeah, and never be activated at all. The good news with verticillium wilt, if you have a tree that's affected by verticillium wilt, and one of the telltale signs of that is half the tree will suddenly die, and then a few weeks later the other half suddenly dies. Uh, it depends on the, the intensity right. of the, the verticillium in the soil itself. The key there is, okay, then... Your soil has verticillium. You're not going to get rid of that, so plant a verticillium-resistant tree, like a Chinese pistache, for example. I think that's a Chinese pistache is verticillium-resistant. Or did I I screw that one up? I think I did screw that up. uh, Verticillium wilt on Chinese pistaches actually can be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And what is Chinese pistache? Oh, I know what Chinese pistache is resistant to. Mistletoe. Oh, mistletoe. (laughs) Yes. Well, Chinese pistache is a wonderful tree, and if people... Uh, just planted it in a situation where it isn't in waterlogged soil, you probably would be just fine. The verticillium wilt is not typically going to develop in soil right. unless you're in a condition like this where you've got an underlying um, clay pan or something down deep in the soil and we happen to have record-breaking rainfall and then lots of things happen. So we are getting questions that are not only drought-related, but they're related to too much rain basically, for the trees that were already under stressed conditions and problems that happened earlier. The other thing um, that we're seeing is that uh, trees then are dying back from long-term stress over time, not just this short-term effect as well, something that just has been going on for years, and then all of a sudden just something pushes them over the edge. And in this case, the push... I believe that this last year was the excessive moisture that we had for so long. Some trees will die. Oak trees are a good example. You can do all kinds of really nasty things to oak trees, put lawns around them, excavate around them, and some trees will curl up and die within a year. Others will last for 20 years or plus, and then all of a sudden something pushes them over the edge. And I've been getting quite a few calls of people with native oak trees in their landscape that are also dying back um, because of the fact that, yeah, they like it dry, but maybe they got used to having a little bit of moisture and you've let them dry out completely, or maybe they just got so wet and the uh, poor drainage showed up because of this last winter. It's really kind of complicated. The drought followed by uh, record-breaking rains have really complicated a lot of the disease problems in trees. We're tackling your tree questions today on Get Growing. Give us a call if you have a question, 576-1578 in the 916 outside the area, 866-331-8255. Email, send it to fred at farmerfred.com. And just to put a pretty little bow on verticillium-resistant tree varieties, that are resistant, uh, the platinus, the western sycamore for one, and uh, all the oaks are resistant to verticillium. Oh, good. So you found that. Yes, I found the list. And speaking of, I I wanted to look up something you said about Phytophthora, just double-checking. We have a really great pest note. If you just type in UC and then root and crown rot, or phyto, if you want to mm-hmm. put in Phytophthora, if you can spell it, but root and crown rot, you'll get a really good publication Uh, one of our pest notes on Phytophthora, and they go into great detail about it. And they basically um, mention something, because I don't think that I've ever seen anything about um, it spreading. It's Botrysferia. 
Botrysphere. It's spreading yes. by um, not the top wind and, yeah. and rain. Right. But what's what this brought up something that you and I talked about the last time I was on the show that complicates things. And it says that slow decline occurs when the roots are attacked because it can spread through the soil, through free water. Mm-hmm. And it says... And rapid decline occurs when the crown is attacked. And you and I talked about people have to know we're not talking the crown, the leafy top of the tree. We're talking the root crown. And we mentioned people should clarify and it right. should say root crown. Right. Because right away. Where the roots meet the trunk. Yes, exactly. And it's then the crown. <laughs> it's the crown. And it says crown. And then it said basal stem. Yeah. So I knew they were talking about that. But I can see where if somebody was reading that would go, oh, are they talking about it's up in the top of the tree, too? No, the root crown. And it does spread. Um, it says it'll completely dry out in dry soil. It won't affect infect anything. But as soon as you put moisture on it, even though it's been dry for years, then and the conditions are just right, this phytopter can take over. Brooks, put the gun away. We'll take a break. Oh, oh, All right. Oh, okay. okay. We'll take Sorry. a break. Then more of Get Growing on the way here on Talk 650 KSDE. Listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you along. Pam Bone is here. We're talking trees on today's edition of Get Growing. To the phones we go, 576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. Email, send it to Fred at farmerfred.com. Don and West Sack, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Don. Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, I've got a cherry, a Bing cherry tree. It's about three years old, and uh, it got injured around where the uh, where the root ball is, where the graft is. Yeah, how'd that happen? It's bleeding, and it's got a big gob of uh, sap there. I wonder how what I could do to. How did it get injured like that? I think the guy that uh, oh, does the lawnmower. I think he injured it with a lawnmower. You know, Pam, it used to be in the old days that the number one cause of tree damage was people ramming into them with lawnmowers or weed whackers. Well, it's still a problem, unfortunately, yeah. no matter how much we tell people. First of all, um, cherry trees do very, very poorly in lawn areas, so I hope it's not in a lawn. Yeah, it's in the lawn. Uh, yeah. Long term, that's not really good. Okay, so first thing you do is you cut the lawn away from the tree itself, and you go out as far as you can possibly sacrifice, but at least go out at least 24 inches away from the tree. So 12 inch, uh, 24 inch uh, or so diameter around the tree. Two two feet, up to three feet if you can get it. How about radius? And, uh, yeah, well, 12 inches out. Okay, you can go 12. That's not very much at all. No, it's not. No, I'd, take it, out, you... I'd take it out to the outer canopy. It would be great, but yeah. people don't. No, and we know from research that at least if you have a diameter of two feet, then you're fine. Be- that helps. Because that will warn people <laughs> that, oh, there's no lawn here. I don't need to mow here or exactly. weed whack here. Yeah. And the thing is, is also the competition for the grass. But cherry trees are also, you know that phytophthora we were just talking about and water mold fungi and poor drainage and all that cherries are probably the number one tree that is sensitive to that and we tell people all the time please don't plant them in lawns have them on their own system off to the um, separated and the only way that if you're going to plant it in a lawn is if you live where um, you've got great sandy soil or, or you know loamy soil or whatever 
But now you've got this injury, so you have to find out did how much of that um, tissue is damaged and how much of the cambium, which is the growth tissue, is damaged, which is underneath, and is it more than... 50% or close to 50% of the trunk. And if it is, I tell people to plant a new tree because it takes so long for that tree to recover, try to close that wound. You can get infection in there. You can get insects um, that'll uh, bore into it, things like that. So what do you think? How how much damage is there? I'd say probably just about half. That, you know what? I would recommend a different tree and taking that tree out and not planting a cherry tree there unless you can give it a much clearer area uh, than what it has now because long-term it's going to be really slow growing. Cherries are sensitive anyhow to um, bacteria and other things that come in to those wounded areas. I, I would recommend um, removal and a new tree. And pruning on cherries are best done actually in the summertime because pruning... Because of that. Yeah, pruning cherries now... Uh, with all the rainy weather, you can be introducing new diseases into the tree. Right, and now you've got this big open wound that's going to take a while for it to close, and the spores are really active this time of the year, or um, they're more active. Do you know if master gardeners are still recommending planting cherry trees? Yes, we definitely recommend them, and I just plant, I plant, well, I didn't just plant them. My cherry trees are now probably five years old or so. Um, but um, I did not get the maggots last year at all, not one. So maybe in my area, it's on the decline, I hope. And by maggots, you mean spotted wing drosophila. Yes, the drosophila, okay. yes. Most people just look at them and think, ah, maggots. Yeah. But the spotted wing drosophila, right. And um, ch- But I still recommend cherries, but with some caveats. And that is don't plant them in lawn yeah. areas. And that we still have the drosophila that might be a problem. There you go, Don, the bearer of bad news, Pam Bone. (laughs) But I don't want you to, I just don't want you to invest a lot of um, time and energy in training this tree in a lawn situation that it might just die in anyhow, especially with a wound that's that large that's going to maybe compromise the plant um, or the tree later on. So I'd like to see you just try something different, new, or put a fruit tree in a a slightly different location just outside the lawn area, it would sure be a whole lot uh, more successful for you. It is times like this where I like to quote landscape designer Michael Glassman, who once famously said, life is too short to put up with a problem plant. That is true. Yeah. Okay. There you go, Don. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much for your information. All right. Thanks for calling. Appreciate that. All right. Let's go up to Newcastle and talk with Pam here on Get Growing. Pam, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Fine, thanks for calling. One Pam to another. What can we help you with? Yes, yes. Um, Well, uh, I actually have a couple of questions, uh, if you have time. The first thing is, uh, oh, number one, I wanted to say thank you about the information about the barn owls, and uh, I'll be building some containers uh, for them. So thank you very much. I like I, For people who don't know what we're talking about, we uh, ran a segment uh, earlier on the KFBK Garden Show talking with uh, UC Davis's Rachel Long about barn owls and how to attract them to your property. And in fact, I'll be replaying that segment at 1130 this morning. Oh, great. So okay. for people who missed it. Great. Um, because, and that leads to my question, I have a Japanese maple, one of the kinds that it's only like about three feet tall and it leans over to one side. And um, I think it, you know, was the uh, the uh, gophers who have eaten the roots ah. because it's not doing well. 
And uh, either that or it was the drought that you're talking about, you know, now. So anyway, my, my question is this. I'd like to take it out of the ground and put it in a container um, on my patio. It's a precious tree to me, and I don't want to take a chance on losing it. Is that going to be okay for the tree? And Yes, uh, I would actually recommend that. If you've got a tree, is it small enough? Uh, how long has it been in the ground? It's actually been in the ground for five years. Mm. Well, and you say, is it doing really poorly right now? Is it, Are you noticing that uh, there's dieback or it's just not growing well? What's the reason behind wanting to move it? Or- yes, the leaves uh, The leaves um, started showing signs of stress. Like they, dr- they, uh, they dried out. And so, and I don't know if it's from the drought, although I was really careful to keep it watered, but did, you know, drought and then yeah. all the heavy rain and then drought. Or sure. I have horrible problem up here with gophers. And, oh, I see. And you were thinking you then know. that that might have caused it. Did you plant it um, bare root uh, in a container or bald and burlapped? Uh, it was in a container. I took it out of the container and put it in the ground. Oh, okay. So you could also, yourself. yeah, I, actually sometimes if it's just doing really poorly, something's not growing well, you almost have to just dig it up as best you can, examine the roots, see if they're circling, girdling, crimped, cut, chewed, whatever, um, and try putting it in a container. It's one half dozen or the other. If you just leave it and you can never really investigate and know what's going on down there, and I have seen very successfully uh, transplanted, especially if it's still fairly small and hasn't really grown that much, and if you can get as big a root ball as possible, and you might have to then transplant it into a half wine barrel or something large like yeah. that um, uh-huh. and and try to nurse it along. And I've had people then replant them out or leave them in there. So you'll just kind of have to determine how big is this? Is it manageable? Can I do it? And this uh, time of the year when trees are in their dormancy is when um, it's the, the least likely to do the uh, harm to the tree. Will she need okay. to cut back the top of that tree when transplanting <laughs> it to a container? This is the well, thing... Go ahead. Yeah, well, he was just saying, should you cut back the top of the tree? We have a lot of um, research that shows that if you do too much pruning of the top, unless you're just taking out some of that dead wood that's dying back that you mentioned, um, that you are actually cutting off the growth hormones that stimulate root growth. And so um, sometimes then you can maybe do just a light trimming back, and especially if you've got dead wood, you want to get that out of there. But you want to be careful about doing any real severe pruning because that uh, new growth there that you have, those little tips in the spring, actually help stimulate root growth. And okay, so yeah, basically... I'm, not, I'm, not I'm just going to take the dead wood out of this. Good, okay. okay. Yeah. So you can try it. And the thing is, is that I know that sometimes it's a difference between two evils in a way, um, but you just have to take the one that you think is going to be the most successful for you. Pam, okay. we have to run here. Thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll take a short break. More Get Growing on the way here at Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Pam Bone, the original Sacramento County Master Gardener, Urban Forester, and other titles, to her credit, (laughs) is here. Master Gardener? Master Gardener, yeah. Well, you're the original Sacramento County Master Gardener. Well, original, that's true, but I'm a current one, too. Okay. 
And of course, uh, she also stars in this YouTube video called Planting and Care of Landscape Trees. If you have an hour and a half to kill, you can watch it and uh, and then take the quiz afterwards. Now, over on the KFBK show, we ran by the people some of the questions that are on this quiz to see how much they know about trees. And uh, here is one of those questions, and we're just playing for fun here. You can think about the answer at home and decide which one is correct. And the question is this. If you were asked what pruning wound paint to apply to a tree cut, what would you recommend? Number one, black paint works best for pruning cuts and should be applied immediately after the cut wound is made. Number two, you would not recommend wound paint as it has been proven not to reduce or prevent decay, nor does it hasten callousing or wound closure. Or number three, wound paint is only effective in keeping out insects and does not help with the healing process. And the correct answer, Pam? Number two. Number two. Yes. Yes. It, definitely. It, 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 it's, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. It is. And, you know, if you read the, they were talking about the black paint, um, that asphalt emulsion. Just read. If anyone's <laughs> yeah. actually read it, you can replace your shingles with it. That, I'm not kidding. That it is actually, I've got a couple of old bottles that I got out of somebody's shed. And right on there, it tells you, yeah, this stuff works really great for shingling your, yeah. you know, it's house. Called, or, or repairing shingles. It's yeah, called repair. Henry's. Yeah, anyhow. <laughs> yes. So um, the thing is, is wound. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about pruning and landscape trees and, and bits. So um, there is a swollen area at the base of every branch called the branch bark collar. And that branch bark collar is an area where there's active um, decay resistance going on, where there are chemicals that are produced whenever a tree is wounded, and it helps prevent the decay fungi and even insects from getting into the tree. It and is the tree's first aid it. kit. It's a tree's first aid kit, definitely. Yeah. It's its own wound paint, basically. So you want to cut outside that collar. You do not want to make a flush cut. That's a really old recommendation. They would say flush cut and paint it with this black stuff or... Even other kinds of wound paints and different treatments um, have proven ineffective. Just leave outside the collar. When you cut a flush cut or you cut inside that collar, you remove the tree's protective barrier to decay. You also make a trunk wound instead of a branch wound. And the trunk wound then is um, going to be larger, leaving more surface area for fungi then to get into. So all around it's bad. So that's one of the number one things for pruning is whether it's a fruit tree or a landscape tree, look for the collar, or there's this little ridge of tissue uh, during where the stem, the branch is attached to the tree, this little ridge of tissue we call the branch bark ridge sticking up, you prune outside that as well. And you make the smallest cut you can possibly make. And so look it up. If you're not sure where to cut, look up branch bark collar and find out where to make the cut. That's really important. Steve Zion put it very descriptively once, mm -hmm. you want to leave enough of a stub where you could almost hang a hat, but not quite. Well, that's true, and I don't call it a stub. I call it a nub. Yeah. If people truly say to me, oh, but you're leaving behind stubs. No, it's a nub. It's a little, and the tree will tell you where to prune. It's called natural target pruning. You basically look at the tree, and there's all this wrinkled shoulder area down at the base, and it's swollen, and there's these wrinkles, and, and for most trees you can see exactly where to prune and you prune outside of that so 
That's that's the number one thing. So you do not need to use wound pain. We research has been done here in California. Practically, it seems like you know half the states in the union have done research. Um, Dr. Alex Shigo is the first person that did research. He's kind of the father of modern arboriculture, and he's proved no, it doesn't speed uh, the closure, the callusing, um, anything. Doesn't keep out anything. It doesn't work. So don't use it. Email from Nadia asks. This morning, did I hear Pam Bones say when changing soil for a citrus tree in a barrel to mix the chopped bark and newspaper with the soil, I thought that was a no-no? Or did she say, put on top of the soil? Please clarify. Yes, no, don't mix it in. That's true. We're using it as a mulch. And mulch is different than incorporating it into it. And so, yes, um, you. I said you could use either anything you have around to just make a mulch. So to keep the soil moist and cool, and it could be straw, it could be wood chips. I said, and even newspaper on the surface may help to keep it cool and moist. I prefer something that can break down. As long as newspaper doesn't mat and become soggy wet, you could even use that. Regina and Roger write in from Madera down in Mm -hmm. Central California. Mm -hmm. Last year, my healthy aspen shot out two and three-foot sideways limbs with very little leafing. Now I see it on some of my other trees. Got any tips for us? We do have hard pan, but all the tree spots were drilled through, otherwise average soil. Aspens in the Central Valley. I'm really surprised that the tree is living at all. They are just not adapted to the Central Valley at all. And I'm wondering if that growth that it's putting out is just sort of um, stress growth, stress-related. But maybe it's just um, limbs that are out of place. She really needs to have somebody take a look at it or send a photo in. Maybe their master gardener program, somebody could look at the limb and tell her, is that a natural growth? Is it just a limb growing out of place? Um, So when you prune a tree, especially a young tree, a lot of times you want to leave those temporary branches, those lower branches on, and you. But you have to keep them short. If you let them, these laterals grow long, um, they're going to then reduce the uh, top growth of the tree. But the lower limbs um, do provide shading if they're mm-hmm. kept small, and then you t- remove them before they get too big, so that you're not creating large wounds when you prune out. So it might just be. A lateral that is someday going to be um, removed because remember, limbs don't grow on trees. They don't move. They're in the same spot wherever they were sprouted from there. That's where they're going to be. And so if a limb's two feet off the ground, it's going to be two feet off the ground in 20 years. And uh, some people, those temporary limbs are just that temporary. You might want to walk under the tree or drive under it or whatever. And um, when you first plant a tree, a lot of times um, the uh, permanent limbs haven't even grown yet. All right. Back to the phones we go. Glenn up in Smartsville. How you doing? I'm doing great, folks. How are you today? We're doing fine. What's yeah. up? Well, I have a couple of questions. I was uh, given a poinsettia uh, on Thanksgiving Day, and it was really, really damp. And since then, almost all the green leaves have fallen off, and there are still several red leaves left. And I'm wondering, what can I do to save the plants? From what I understand, getting them too wet kind of drowns them. Oh, yeah, that's true. And those red leaves you see are actually not leaves. They're modified bracts. And the true flower of the uh, poinsettia is the little yellow flower you see in the center. And that, oh, okay. that's, that's called the cyathea. And a lot of people make that mistake, Pam, of when watering a poinsettia is if it's in came wrapped in foil, 
where's the water going to go? It's just exactly. going to sit there. And if you want to leave it in the foil, that's fine. If you punch holes through it in the bottom and mm-hmm. you can kind of usually feel the hole in the pot and then you just punch, punch, punch all that out and then obviously put a container under mm-hmm. it. But uh, Or you and, take it to the sink and take it out of the foil, water it, let it drain and then put it back in the foil. You and could take do that back. too. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that a lot of these plants um, are sort of shocked when they come into a really warm house. And they don't like um, a lot of heat. So if they're if a register happens to be blowing on them, they're near a fireplace. Uh, you probably aren't using a fireplace quite yet, but you never know. No. There's been a few cold nights. And so um, the thing is, is that it could be a whole host of problems. But those red, quote, leaves can last for months on the mm-hmm. uh, plant and will hang on. Um, even though you've lost all the green ones. So you can still enjoy them if you're careful about watching the watering on it and where you place it in the house. Yep, drainage is key. Keep it away from vents and wood stoves and uh, any sort of cold drafts. And give it uh, a bright light. It likes that. Yeah, reading light. uh, Basically, yeah, probably a south or a west-facing window. Mm -hmm. Or near it. Yeah, yeah, we have it right by a west-facing sliding glass door, so it is getting plenty of light. All right, as long as it isn't too close to the door... Because there could right, be cold right. air coming in that could be adversely affecting it. Poinsettia, a tropical plant that prefers nighttime temperatures to be well above 50 degrees. Yes, that's okay. the other thing. When you turn your heat off at night or whatever, you might also have um, conditions that are not really conducive to their growth. Yep. Okay. And I have one other question. Is it too late for me to plant my sweet pea uh, seeds in the ground for next spring? No, it's never too late. <laughs> No, the only problem with it is, depending on how wet the soil is, then sweet peas in cold, wet soils may not uh, germinate. Um, They may rot. You just don't know. It's hard to say. But, yes, I've seen sweet peas go in really late and and in soils that uh, in January, and people still are successful with them. Do you have good drainage there? Yes, we do. One key that can help... uh institute uh, germination is soak those seeds for six hours in lukewarm water before you plant them and that that can that can hasten uh, uh, germination yeah i'm looking at the uh, master gardener uh, vegetable planting schedule and they talk about planting peas regular peas not sweet peas yeah these are yeah you're right we're talking ornamental peas aren't we yeah 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 so anyhow i you know what it's definitely if you've got the seeds already it's definitely worth trying as long as as long as you've got you have good drainage and it doesn't get too waterlogged and the soil doesn't get too wet and cold and we'll just have to see how the rest of the winter plays out give it a shot what do you got to lose Right, exactly. So you do recommend uh, putting them in warm water to to help the germination, or yeah, yeah, a little bit of scarification to uh, soften the seed coat so that they will germinate quicker and not mm-hmm. uh, sit in cold, wet soil for too long without doing something. Okay. Well, thank you, folks. I appreciate your help. Yeah, All right, thanks. Glenn. Thanks for calling. We'll take uh-huh. a break. We'll take a break. More of get growing on the way on Talk Six Fifty KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Along with Pam Bone, we're answering your gardening questions. We're talking trees. And here's an email question from David in Folsom. And he says he has a new home with fruit trees up on a good drain slope in Folsom. He says He says, I found a lot of dead branches on both trees and rot going down to the main trunk. It looks like the branches had been broken for a year or two. 
So I didn't top the cherry trees, but I did clean out all the crossing branches inside and any of the exterior branches. I'm not sure what he meant by that. The main trunk is good, and the largest cut I made was about a half inch and clean at least two inches from the trunk. Well, that's a stub. The apple tree had dead wood in places and, again, from broken branches. Tree seems to be about 10 years old. I cut the interior crossing branches out and shaped the tree for winds and new growth for light getting in. I used alcohol to clean my pruning shears. I didn't do heavy end cuts on branches that are fruit-bearing. There was so much old dead fruit all over the ground. I wanted to get this done before the heavy weather came. It's cool at night, 35 and lower at times, so that's why I waited. Did I mess up by not waiting until February? Well, I would say uh, you did fine. I mean, I would have done the cherry trees back in late summer. Ideally, the university does recommend for cherries and apricots, particularly because of various diseases, that you prune them before winter rains really hit. Because the spores of the fungus or bacteria um, don't get spread around. And those wounds don't heal very quickly in the wintertime. No, that's true. And especially they're very slow, um, especially with larger wounds. Now, he had very small cuts, Mm -hmm. and it hasn't been horribly uh, wet, and we're going to have a dry spell here. Waiting till February is probably not going to, sometimes February can be a really wet month. I, I don't think that he's going to have an issue with that. But in the future, going forward, he should definitely try to do his pruning in the late summer um, months. The other thing is, though, that he did, remember when we're talking pruning fruit trees and pruning landscape trees, there are some things that are the same, like pruning outside the branch collar, things like that. Getting rid of crossing branches. And not leaving stubs. That two inches sounded like it yeah, might be a little long. stub. Yeah. He needs to actually look at the tree and see where the collar is on each one of them. The other thing is he says he didn't top it. With fruit trees, there are sometimes necessity to bring a tree down. You kind of do a, um, a thinning cut, but it's almost a... It's almost a topping cut. Sometimes you have to do that. And, of course, ultimately with fruit trees, remember the ultimate topping cut is when you bring it home from the nursery and you go whack and you prune it back cut to it a back bud. at the knees. Yeah. but um, That's okay. Right. That's what you should do. But prune- Now, you're using terms that you didn't explain. Oh, what didn't I explain? What's a thinning cut? What's a topping cut? What's or a heading cut? cut? Yeah. Okay. okay. So a thinning cut is to cut back all the way to the trunk. Are you going to take a branch itself and you're going to cut back to a limb that can resume the lead? You haven't truncated it. You haven't just lopped it off and you've cut back with a purpose so that you retain the outer growth that the tree can continue to grow from those outer leaves, the outer branches. So you'd use a thinning cut if you wanted to let more air and sun into the tree. Well, and you do use a thinning cut almost for landscape trees. Thinning cuts are almost always the only cut that you make. You do not heading cuts are cuts where you don't really think about where you're cutting. You don't cut back to a bud or back to a limb that can resume the lead. It's a a, a cut that really takes very little training or education at all. And that's where we lead to topping cuts, which are mm-hmm. big, large heading cuts. Right. And we don't do that on landscape trees. It's Fruit trees are a little bit different. Sometimes it, it kind of becomes muddled as to whether it's a heading cut or a thinning cut. Where yeah. would heading cuts be most appropriate? Heading cuts would be, uh, with landscape trees, never. Not um, even if it's rubbing up against a roof? 
No, because then you want to make a large. So what we do then, we do what we call a reduction cut, which is kind of like an oversized thinning cut. And you reduce the weight of that. You reduce the large limb by, again, cutting back to a natural limb that can resume the lead. Another to tree. Across. Another another li- lateral yeah. limb, another branch, a secondary limb that's come off if you can. And that's not a heading cut? And no, because it's you're you're going to back a, to, to a branch. another okay. branch. So that would be a thinning branch. That's a thinning branch. Okay. And in arborist terms, when it's a larger cut like that, they call it a reduction cut. They're reducing it back, but you're still reducing it to something that can resume the lead. You're not just lopping it off. If you don't have to think about it and you just lop it off, that's a heading cut, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, those are improper. And they look unnatural. And you don't leave the the new the growth. If you're not leaving the outer growth, if you're not seeing the little buds and the leaves and the twigs out there, then you probably have lopped them all off, and that's a heading cut. And you don't want that. So you want to make sure. Now, he did one thing really good. He uh, got rid of crossing limbs, Mm -hmm. limbs that are rubbing on one another. Those are areas where you can create a wound and then you can get um, borers and fungi and bacteria that can get into those wounds. So it's good to do that. Branches that are right on top of one another that can shade each other, whether it's a shade tree or a landscape, I mean, a fruit fruit tree tree is good also to uh, make sure that you uh, reduce that and you don't want that at all. And then um, what he mentioned some other things. He had, oh, he talked about um, the outside limbs, and I think he said he re- didn't he reduce some of the weight and the growth on the outside limbs. Um, somewhat he he brought them back in a little. So if you've got a lot of heavy weight on a limb, you might want to do a thinning cut or a reduction cut to uh, prevent that. Um, and then most important on landscape trees, especially, is when you've got the slingshot effect and you've got two limbs that are of equal size, co-dominant stems, I think mm, you... Co-dominant leaders. Co-dominant stems, co-dominant leaders, and you don't want two leaders fighting with each other. With a narrow crotch angle. You know why? Because bark gets embedded in there yeah. and that embedded bark doesn't knit together and... A neighbor, I was driving down the street, and I saw it literally, it must have split within 10 minutes of me driving. I I ran home, got my camera, went right back. Same thing had happened. It was a Modesto ash tree. All the branches were all coming out of the same spot, and one of the limbs just broke off. And sure enough, you could see bark. And you could actually even see roots growing in that area. (laughs) Because of the dirt that collected. Because of, yeah, it had all kinds of debris in there and it was sprouting little little things in there so um this is a really unsafe thing too let's talk about that angle of co-dominant leaders more because you mentioned the slingshot and a slingshot is more when people picture a slingshot they may picture the letter y and co-dominant leaders is more shaped like the letter v it's a more (laughs) acute angle Right. If it's a, um, a Y or a U, sometimes then you have to look at it. You'll see, oh, the, the bark doesn't look like it's in there. A lot of times, if it's, you're right, if it's a narrow V-shaped um, crotch angle, as we call it sometimes, um, then you will see that there sometimes is a line of bark going down it. Mm-hmm. And I've actually gone out to trees where I heard creak, 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 and I'm going, where is it? And, oh, you, oh, you've been in my backyard. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know that there somewhere you have those um, those two leaders fighting with each other, yeah. and that bark is embedded, and it's already started to crack, and it's creaking, and you better start looking. It's a hazard. So you're saying your neighbor has that? Yes. Uh-oh. What and, else is new? And then, you know, what do you do, Fred? <laughs> yeah. And the problem is, and even if it was your own tree, 
by the time it gets to that point, you're, you are going to be removing half the tree and you're going to be creating a huge wound. And so you've got to correct these things when they're young. That's the problem. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. And uh, we've given you plenty of answers. There is a clue available at FarmerFred.com and the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. So after the news, we will get to the Garden Grappler. If you're online with a question, stay there, and uh, we'll get to your questions here on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Now we're going to start the garden grappler, he tried to say. Brooks, did your help bail on you when they heard it was the garden grappler? Oh, there he is. Okay, good. All right, Kylie's here. Brooks is here. We're going to do this garden grappler and uh, see if you know the stuff we've been talking about. And if if you're on hold with a question, stay there. And we'll answer your questions, and we might even let you play the garden grappler because you may have an answer or two. Is that okay with you, Brooks? I'll put him back on hold. Kylie, is that okay with you? I'll put it back on hold, and then there shouldn't be any problems. Famous last words. Today's garden grappler, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, little animals gathered there by the light of the electric radio. Today's garden grappler is name a good tree pruning pointer. A good piece of advice if you're going to prune a tree. Name a good tree pruning pointer. The pruning pointer princess, Pam Bone, will be the judge of today's uh, competition. She will be saying your answers are yay or nay. All five callers get a prize. Special bonus prize for caller five, because as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. The numbers to call in, 576-1578 in the 916 area code, 576-1578. Outside the area, 866-331-8255. 866-331-8255. Name a good tree pruning pointer. A piece of advice about pruning trees correctly. That's all we need. I think you can do that. And while you're thinking about that, we'll answer some garden questions here on Get Growing, and maybe these people might want to chime in with an answer or two. We'll see. Sandy and Loomis, thanks for holding. Hi, Sandy. Hi. Hi. Um, What's your question? Hi. Um, I have an um, almond tree that's um, elderly and on its way out, and it's unfortunately infested with some kind of beetles, horribly infested. So uh, we should cut it down long ago, but we just kept loving the blossoms. Anyway, so it's time for it to go, and I wanted to put a peach tree in a similar area. You know, it's a perfect area for a blooming tree. So is that going to be a problem? And what's the best way to go about preparing the site? Good question. Well, it's it's nice that an almond tree and a peach tree are both from the same genus, prunus. Of course, that also means they're susceptible to the same problems, too. Do you think that it just um, has bores due to old age and the tree failing just because it was old? Or was it due to sunburn? Or do you have any idea why the bores have come in? I'm hoping and thinking that it's because of age, um, but I do have to admit we haven't really, you know, we haven't fertilized it. We haven't done much to care for it. Uh, maybe the drought, but I, okay. actually, I think it was. I think it's been infested for a couple of years. So, okay. Uh, but, well, and I the, don't think the, it's sunburned. The reason that's what I was wondering. Um, a lot of the bark beetles and the borers that go into trees in this area are due to trees under stress. Drought stress is a good reason for it. Um, 
but it can also be excessive moisture. So for a peach tree, they have very much similar conditions. They need full sun. If you can give it um, all day long, that would be wonderful. Um, They also need to have good drainage. So if you've got good drainage, um, they don't want to be planted in a lawn situation. You can plant them if it still meets those criteria. You could take the almond out, removing all of the wood. You know, almond makes great firewood. And um, then you could plant in the same location as long as you've got the roots of the other um, tree out of there just so they don't interfere with you trying to plant um, or put it somewhere to the side so that you're not dealing with a stump and trying to do that, um, working around that. If it meets all the other criteria, do do you have um, good full sun and good drainage and no competition from lawns and things? Yes, yes, I do. Um, um, did you want yes, a? It has full sun and and uh, yeah, no competition Good. for for sun or lawn. Okay. And um, I mean, lawn is in the area, but it it not right up country, to it. So this is not a manicured thing. So oh, it's okay. Kind of neat, you know. It's kind of nice. We where we water, you know, the lawn grows, and then where we don't water with irrigation, the lawn doesn't grow. So we can, you know, just we just okay. Now you know, if the, the hose out to water the trees. Yeah. <laughs> If this is a tree that does have borers, what really should be best done with the old almond wood? Um, if you take, if you want to use it for firewood, then you just take because we're not sure what we're dealing with bore wise. Mm-hmm. But most of them are ones that probably won't go to healthy, vigorous trees. But to be on the safe side, we would tarp them and mm-hmm. just cover the tar- um, the it so that the beetles, if they do emerge, then can't get out; they just die. That would be a clear plastic tarp. Yeah, it would be best if you could yeah. do that and okay. and and tuck it in on the sides and everything so that they if they crawl out or fly out or whatever they um will just die. So or that, that chip would be and the shred best. Yes, you could. Word. But yeah. some people want to use it and okay. and most of the time it's not going to be a problem if you tarp it. So now, Sandy, did you say you wanted a flowering peach or a fruiting peach? No, I want a fruit. Okay, fruiting, fruiting peach. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, definitely you know, peaches. We are enjoy great. the blossoms that I want to can and such. So. Okay. Oh, good. Right. Yeah. Fay Alberta, the best. That's one of Alberta. my Fay Alberta is the best peach for canning. It's uh-huh. wonderful. I have it. Um, I've been growing it for years. Um, we put in a new young one just recently. Plus, it's a great eating peach, but it's a wonderful peach. So that's my recommendation. Do you want a yellow peach or a white peach? No, yellow, don't plant. No, you have to have. Uh, you can't have a white peach if you're going to can. You have to have yellow peach. So really, yes, well, white I did, peach. I never saw that law in the yeah, book. Yeah, it is because white peaches are too fragile and too tender, and they fall to pieces, and you can't can well with them. So okay. believe me, I've been canning peaches for years. So I that's the one thing I do know um, about um, peaches. So according oh, to the well, no wonder when my grandmother canned them, they were considered delicacies. So, yes, they uh, were because now you I know why <laughs> you have to treat them very carefully, and you have to get them. Uh, when they're almost uh, slightly underripe, or otherwise they just are mush, or yeah, it's too fragile. Okay, they're fragile. They very much are so. But Acqu- anyhow, according to Dave Wilson Nursery and their taste tests by their panels, they say that the top five yellow peaches uh, for flavor mm-hmm. and such: Harkin, O'Henry, Loring, Forty Nine er, and the Compact Flavorette. Well, I would recommend for canning if you're going to do that. Back to my Felberta, it may not be listed on there, but it has fabulous flavor and it cans well. And O'Henry is also an excellent choice. All right. So, okay. For okay. both. Perfect. Actually. So, Thanks. yes, definitely do that. And one of the things that you can do, too, is go to the, um, I, did you say you were in Sacramento County? 
It's in Loomis. Loomis. Yeah. Closer. Okay, well, close enough. Oh, you can go to their website, too. The Master Gardener websites for either county um, have really good instructions on how to plant fruit trees. And they um, will help you then to make sure that you ensure success because you started off right. So go to the Master Gardener website for your county or the Sacramento County and look up um, fruit trees and what they need when you first plant. Now, Sandy, did you want to uh, take your chance at the Garden Grappler and name a good tree pruning pointer? Yes. Um, look for the collar and uh, leave a nub, not a uh, the other word that was used. Stub, not say. a stub, yes. <laughs> right. a stub. Yeah, don't leave a stub, okay. leave a nub. That's good and enough. That's, that's it. Yes, yeah, stop right there. Don't yeah. give away no, anymore. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Prune outside the branch collar. Look for the collar. There tree, you go. Will, tree will show you where it is most of the time. Good going, good. Sandy. I'm you were gonna, listening. Yay. I'm going to send you my uh, papers on don't top that tree and uh, how to take care of trees after a storm. So I'll be uh, sending that your way. Now, let me put you on hold, and Kylie and Brooks will get your uh, name and address, and I'll be uh, shipping those your way, okay? Great show today. Thank you, Pam. Oh, thank you for calling in. Yeah, good Good answer. All right. So Sandy's back on hold. And uh, tell you what, guys, gals, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll get to answers two through five in today's Garden Grappler on Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. In the middle of the Garden Grappler, looking for answers to today's question, name a good tree pruning pointer, a piece of advice. That's good if you're going to prune a tree. 576-1578 in the 916 or 866-331-8255. Pam Bone is here, urban forester, original Sacramento County Master Gardener. Former star of, uh, what was the name of that TV, show? Grassroots Guide to Yard Care. Thank you, yes. Grassroots Guide to Yard Care. You, we've been off the air just as long as we were on the air, though, now. So that, uh, it's in a vague memory for people yeah, of a certain age. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the phones. Now, Wes in West Sacramento has been on hold since Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. And uh, he has a question. Maybe he has an answer, too. I don't know. Wes, thanks for holding. Fred, Pat, good morning. Great show. Thank you. Thanks. I, I've got uh, one of them, I should say one. The house I have had the Modesto ice tree planted when it was built. I've owned it since it was built. And, of course, the Modesto ice is a lousy tree. <laughs> uh, the city came around and offered uh, sycamores, mm. which... Uh, That's all they like offered you? Great. That's all they offered? <laughs> no, there was others, but oh. as I think back, this has been 15, 18 years ago. Okay. And uh, I don't know. The, they should never have had that in there, neither. The front of the house, as the neighbor commented the other day, gee, it looks like a park. It's a, there are beautiful trees out there, but they're lifting the cement mm-hmm. on the driveway. I bet they have mistletoe. No, no, this is the no sycamore. Oh, the sycamore. Oh, the okay. sycamore. Oh, they oh. and uh, what's happening? We're getting sounds like SOS going oh, on. Oh, Wes, we got a bad connection here. We're gonna have to go away. Sorry about that. Oh no, really? Well, yeah. Oh well, let me. Um, <laughs> Maybe you'll call back. Yeah, and let yeah. me answer about um, root problems on sycamore. 
They okay. are a problem. Yeah. And you don't want to go out there and start whacking and hit and cutting roots off of a tree because you don't know if that's the root that's actually supporting the tree. You get a professional. Or, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Just make sure that you have somebody that really knows what they're doing so that you don't create a hazardous situation or maybe kill the tree. All right. Let's get some garden grappler answers here. Name a good tree pruning pointer. Brad and Martinez, go ahead and give us one. Hi, Brad. So the one, the, uh, the advice I have for pruning is uh, check with mom first. Check with mom first. Well, well that's can the, you be a little bit, why are you checking with mom? She knows. Mom knows. Oh, okay. Well, tell us what mom, one thing that mom would tell you about pruning. Well, the reason I went with my your answer uh, is because um, your previous caller took my answer. Cut a uh, cut outside the growth ring. <laughs> oh, cut outside the collar. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, checking with mom. Just tell me why you check with her. Just elaborate a little bit more about what that does. Oh boy, I bought a house once with rose bushes that were so tall they were pushing the eaves up off the house. I called my mom and said, "Mom, what do I do about these roses?" She said, you can't kill a rose that big. Cut it off at the ground. And I did, and they came back beautifully. That's true. Okay, so I'm going to take your question and allow it by just elaborating a little bit, and that is that you're going to talk to somebody that knows why you're pruning, right? Yep, that's, that's it. it. Okay, so um, that's probably the reason. that That's the number one reason. Our number one thing about pruning is why are you making that cut? Why are you pruning? Mm -hmm. So get somebody educated or learn it yourself. So I will accept that, that mom is an educated pruner and knows why you are pruning, right? (laughs) All right. Hey, hey, Brad, I'll I'll send you a list of uh, all sorts of good things about pruning. On the uh, Don't don't Top That Tree, as well as the Trees and Storms. And then you can also become... An expert like your mother. There, yeah. Very well, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. All right, good job. All right, sort of. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, yeah, don't let branches rub against the the, the house. Oh, that'd be a good reason to prune. Why are you giving away? Because he said that. He said he talked about the rose bush well, he was reaching about the a, eaves. Moving. Well, he was talking about it, not a tree, though. That was a rose well, bush. I know. Fred, you just gave away one of the choice answers I'm there. I'm trying somebody... to move this contest along. Okay. Jim in Sacramento, go ahead. Give us a good reason to prune. <clears throat> to cut out crossing branches and open up for air and sunshine. Perfect. Ooh, oh, you were good. listening all right. Yeah, all right, That's Jim. excellent. Good answer. Yeah, I, was, I was listening. I have a couple of quick questions because I'm a little confused. I have a... Uh, cling peach and a dappy dandy plue, dappy dandy, vapple dandy plue. I That's easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm practicing too. <laughs> and a uh, a, a Fuji apple, but they're all in, they're all they're in uh, half wine barrels. They're all on dwarf stock. But they, I did, I against my better judgment at the time, I listened to the guru farmer Fred, and I uh, cut them off at the knee when I planted. Yeah, okay. But they shot up, and so now, like one of them's like almost seven feet tall, and I don't want it to be that tall. No. And you said, "Don't top," but then you said, "Okay, we have to shape the tree somehow." Or whatever. Remember, so though, I said much- there's a difference between fruit trees and landscape trees, and sometimes you have to do things differently for fruit trees than you do for landscape trees. Um, you don't have to worry about a safety issue by topping and you're going to get all these branches that are then someday going to split out on somebody's car or person with a fruit tree. And you have a whole different purpose. You want to grow fruit, right? And you want right. to keep it small enough that you can pick that fruit. And so you may have to make a cut then that directs it to another bud or a limb or something then that is going to give you the branches that you need. And so, yes, you can go back. What I would do is can you prune it to 
um, another promising bud or another limb that is going to direct the tree the way that you want it? Okay. Basically, okay. if it's a seven-foot-tall tree, cut back two feet this year. Yeah, That's cut it back. But yeah. look for, a, just like you do with roses, look for a bud that is going to do something you want it to do. Okay, they just dropped their leaves like within the last week or so. Can I do it now or do I need to wait? Could you wait till after the show? Yes. <laughs> okay. All then right. you can. Yeah. That'd be okay. fine. Now, I tell you what, Jim, I want to move this contest along. We have things to do here. If you can come up with two more good pieces of pruning advice, I'll give you the grand prize. What? Oh, oh my wow. Gosh. Well, that's the way it is. <laughs> good so we job. Cut out the thing. Oh, we have to trim it so that there's not a V so that it. Yeah, you don't, okay. make sure you don't have competing leaders. No yeah. co-dominant leaders. That, that's okay. mostly for fruit tree. I yeah. mean, landscape trees. But right. yep, that works. Yeah. And we do we do trim cuts, not massive cuts. We don't you, do haircuts. You, we don't top. You do thinning uh, don't top cuts. That tree. Thinning yes. cuts, not topping cuts on landscape trees. Topping heading cuts are almost never ever done. Jim, congratulations! Your Perfect. grand prize wow. is the Sacramento County Master Gardener Gardening Guide and <gasps> Calendar. I'll be sending your way. It's All a right, cool. and it's a great one this year too. Yep. Lots of good information. Wow, good prize. Good job, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks for playing our game and thanks to everybody for playing our game here. We Wow, that went fast. Well, we had to. And they were listening though. That was what was really great. The people that uh, called in were really listening to everything we had to say. So good. Yeah, miracles do happen. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> we like that. They learned something. All right, we got time for one more email question here okay. from Susan. And she writes in, I, where is she? She's in Elk Grove. And she says, I have three Tupelo trees. They have large areas of open dirt around them. They're planted in Elk Grove clay. During the drought, they were deep watered about every six weeks. They're about 20 years old and have always had beautiful red leaves in the fall. Starting about four years ago, they would leaf out and stay green during the summer, but starting in the fall, the leaves would get a yellow rim around them and then eventually turn brown and fall off. I have had very little of the flaming red leaves on two of those trees. The tree that is on the side of the house does not do this and turns red in the fall. Even though we are in clay, the trees are planted where there's a slight incline. Could this problem be drought-related or some kind of fungus, bacterial, or other problem? Other than this fall problem, the trees appear to be healthy. Drought. Drought. Yeah, I yeah. think. And it could just be seasonal, too. They're finally running out of water. Um, you've not irrigated them quite as much as they need. Tupelos not, are thirsty trees. They are, though they can do okay in a landscape that's managed um, efficiently with not being watered all the time with a lawn. Well, they don't have to be. If it's hydrozoned with other plants with similar watering That's needs. exactly right. And so I think what it is is she's seeing drought stress. I would mulch. And I would give them a deep soak occasionally. Yeah. If they're not on their own separate system, then you're going to have to go out there with a soaker hoses or something and give it a good soak uh, over and above what it's been getting. Tupelo trees are a tree that we usually recommend for those low-lying areas that have a hard yes. time drying out. Yes, they actually can do quite well there. Though yeah. you can, I've seen them too waterlogged too. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that would be probably the best estimate. And when she mentioned that they get yellow that kind rim. of yellowing yeah, rim, right. that's usually meaning it's drying out. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, when you get a, a marginal discoloration like that, uh, that's usually water-related. Right, yeah. exactly. And Tupelo comes from Tupelo, Mississippi, and those Mississippi bottom lands definitely swamp. are swamp. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Do you have any uh, uh, final pieces of advice for us? Well, my final piece of advice is that if we didn't answer all your questions today— Master gardeners do answer questions in, and even if you're not in Sacramento County, 
almost every county surrounding us has a master gardener program and they have some sort of a gardening hotline where you can call in. But the Sacramento County Master Gardeners answer phones Monday through Thursday, either um, 9 to 12, 1 to 4, sometimes both. And definitely go to uh, Master Gardener websites, whether it's Sacramento County or another one. There's a wealth of information to answer a lot of your questions. And I know on your Get Growing with Farmer Fred, you link to a lot of UC Mm -hmm. um, sites as well. So just want to recommend that people give us a call. And I do answer phones um, at the Cooperative Extension. And if somebody really wants to ask a question they couldn't answer today, um, I'm on in on um, Thursdays, not every Thursday, but usually every other Thursday. And master gardeners are on duty from what either is it? either nine to twelve or one to four. Some days both. Usually when it's Thursdays, I'm in nine to twelve, and there's not usually an afternoon person then. And we're closed Fridays. Okay, so it's Monday through Thursday. Monday through Thursday, nine right. to noon and one to four. Right, and so um, <laughs> definitely give a call to the uh, master gardeners, and I'd be uh, love to talk to anybody, especially about trees, but other subjects as well on Thursday. I happen to be working this Thursday at the office, too. So, Did you mention the number? Um, no. You mentioned it earlier, but yeah. I guess we should say it again. Yeah. 876-5338. That's the direct Master Gardener line. Um, you can leave a message, too, if you call mm-hmm. when we're not there. 916 is the area yes, code. Yes, area code 916. But remember, I know you get listeners from all over the place, and we have some just outstanding Master Gardener programs mm-hmm. in um, Placer, El Dorado, uh, Tuolumne, Calaveras, Sutter, Yuba, all the counties that surround us. Yolo, yep. Solano, they all have great Don't programs. leave anybody out or yeah, I'll I'm hear about it. I'm trying to think of all of Did them. Did you say San Joaquin? So San Joaquin okay, County, yeah, you, you go down there. That's true. Yep. Uh, well, all the counties you can think of that surround us have great Master Gardener programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bambone, the original Sacramento County Master Gardener. Thanks for uh, playing our little game with us today. Oh, I enjoyed it very <laughs> much. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated the very attentive listeners today. Yeah. And we had a, a really good uh, interaction with them. When we come come back, we're talking barn owls with Rachel Long out at UC Davis as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. No, that sound wasn't fingernails going across a chalkboard. That was the sound of the barn owl, a very distinctive owl with a very distinctive cry. Barn owls may be a big help where you live to control the rodent population. It's been estimated that on farms alone in California, rodents cause something like a half billion dollars damage. Now, if you live in the country, maybe you have a ranchette, maybe you have open fields next to you, and if you have a rodent problem... Barn owls might be able to help you out as well. We're talking with Rachel Long. Rachel is a farm advisor based in Woodland for UC Cooperative Extension. And Rachel, barn owls are a big help when it comes to controlling rodents, aren't they? Well, uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, rodents, uh, as you just mentioned, are really, really terrible pests, uh, especially for uh, for farmers because they feed on the crops uh, they and they also can uh, damage the irrigation line. So when I'm talking about rodents, I'm referring to mice, to voles, which are also called uh, meadow mice, uh, gophers, and, uh, and then sometimes even we get, uh, we get rats out there on the farms. And so, um, so yes, yeah, so these are really, uh, really terrible pests that, uh, that definitely are challenging to, uh, to control. But I hear a lot of farmers screaming through the window at me and homeowners as well saying, but what about squirrels? Will they go after squirrels? 
So, uh, yeah, so barn owls, no, probably the, uh, they won't go after squirrels. You know, they're just uh, too, too big of prey. There's certainly a lot of raptors that'll go after the, uh, the squirrels. And so you have uh, hawks and you have uh, uh, eagles. But the, but the other problem is, is, you know, the squirrels are active during the daytime. And uh, and the uh, and so raptors and uh, the owls are, are are active at night, and uh, and so they just you know they just don't uh, don't overlap. But of course the uh, the uh, uh, like hawks and uh, eagles uh, they're active during the day, and so they're more of the uh, predators of the squirrels. So the nocturnal rodents, the voles, the gophers, the mm-hmm. rats, the meadow mice, they are the mm-hmm. targets then of these barn owls. H- how many rodents will a barn owl eat? So, uh, um, so a family of five, and that would include like two adults and uh, and three young. They'll feed on about a thousand rodents during the se- during the season. You know, when they're nesting and, and going out and actively hunting and bringing bringing rodents, or, you know, gophers and voles back to the nest. And uh, so they'll, uh, as I say, about a thousand rodents during the season. And sometimes they'll even nest twice in a year. And uh, when they nest twice, you know, then you're doubling that number of rodents. So. Uh, so that's uh, that's a lot of rodents that they will feed on in a uh, in a year. Barn owls are, are very recognizable if you get a chance to see them by their white face, but they have a, a, a slightly different call than your typical screech owl, don't they? Right, they do. You know that uh, that when you hear these uh, barn owls at night, they actually do screech, and uh, rather than hoot, a lot of the uh, or owls are, are hooting owls. You know, we're really familiar, for example, with the great horned owl hoot. But the uh, barn owls have a loud screech, and uh, and it, it actually can be kind of scary if you don't know what it is, or some people just find it really annoying. Uh, but others of us know that, you know, it's actually good to hear that sound at night because it means that you've got a predator out there that's hunting your uh, your, your gophers and, and mice and, uh, and uh, helping to control them naturally. I am sure many people have been surprised at the sight of a barn owl at dusk because you don't hear them coming. They can swoop in and you won't even know they're there. Yeah, they uh, they are actually you know they're they're just stealthy. I mean they uh, they actually have uh, their feathers are sort of modified so that uh, so that they just really don't make a sound and it it is startling you know when you're when you're out in the evening and then suddenly a barn owl is like right above you and you just don't even hear it. It's really uh, it's really remarkable how how well they can uh, they can hunt at night and that's what makes them so effective is they've got great eyesight. And uh, and then you just don't even hear the the beat of their wings, uh, the whooshing that you normally would hear from other birds. You don't hear from the from the owls, and that's what makes them su- such successful uh, predators. And uh, that they can they can capture their prey at night, and the prey don't even hear them. You know, one thing is that uh, that uh, the barn owls really do have uh, incredible hearing and incredible uh, uh, sight. You know, they have that they have that icon- iconic heart shaped face that is just beautiful. You know, they're they have a white face and a, and a white body and then a tan back with lots of spots. And that, uh, that iconic heart-shaped face really helps to, uh, to channel um, sound. So they're, they're, of course, they're listening and they're flying and they're listening for those, uh, uh, those rodents that are scurrying around like in the grass. And it's just a really just an amazing adaptation to me that, you know, that they uh, that they actually have this, this heart-shaped face that allows them to hunt so efficiently. This is a good time, too, if you want to attract barn owls to uh, find some good places to put barn owl boxes, because ar- around this time, November and December, is when they're seeking out nesting sites, right? 
That's exactly true. That this is just the perfect time to to put up a a nest box because、uh, because the males and females are getting together and they're searching out nest sites. And、uh, so the the barn owls actually begin nesting in、uh, in February. And、uh, so you really want to make sure if you、uh, if you want to put out a house for the、uh, for the barn owls that now is the time to put it out because. They are looking for nest sites at this time in in order to、uh, to start laying eggs in February. I was surprised to learn that barn owls、uh, do have predators coming after them, and、uh, one of their major enemies are other species of owls. Yeah, like the great horned owl that、uh, that I was talking to a guy just the other day, and he was telling me that he was just watching a barn owl, and a great horned owl just came out of nowhere. And just and just and just basically just just came down and just snared it. It was he said it was、uh, it was really just kind of a little distressing because he because he loves his barn owls. But yeah, that、uh, that can happen. And、uh, and so the、uh, the one of the main predators, of course, of the barn owl is is the great horned owl. Now, how about some barn owl house basics?、Uh, what size、mm-hmm. should it be? And how do you how do you clean the thing? Oh, that's a really good question. So there's、uh, there's wonderful barn、uh, barn owl box or house plans in、uh, one of our uh, uh, University of California booklets called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes that can、uh, can be found、uh, online. And、uh, and then also there's a lot of plans also that are that are found online. But you know, it basically it's just like a large a large box that's you know at least、uh, maybe you know、uh, two feet by uh, wide. Um, By one foot,、uh, by you know, by maybe another 15 inches high, and with a with a hole、uh, in it, so that the barn owls can go、uh, in and out. And then what you have is in the back, you'll have a little hinged door that you can open up because the the barn owl box will fill up with pellets and such. And so,、uh, so you, at the end of the nesting season. Uh, usually in the fall,、uh, early winter. So you're talking, you know, maybe October, November, December. Then, then you can open up the back and try to sweep that out. Of course, you don't want to breathe any of that dust, you know, because the、uh, it's basically, you know, just、uh, could be could be a little bit、uh, unhealthy to breathe that dust. Um, but uh, but then you can do that, and you want to check and just sort of maintain the the houses that way. Going back to the construction of the barn owl house, how big should that opening be to allow them to get in and get out? You know, it's got to be at least、uh, I would say about、uh, maybe six inches、uh, high and say、uh, four to five inches wide. And、uh, and as I say, those plans can be can be found on the on the website. And it used to be, you know, that we'd recommend having a perch there, but we don't anymore because I think when you have a perch that、uh, that hawks can actually land on the little perch, you know, outside the hole, and then they can reach in with their talons and、uh, and pluck out a、uh, a little baby barn owl. So so actually, we recommend now really not even having that perch. Again, now's the time that barn owls are hunting for nesting sites to start laying their eggs、uh, come winter time. And if you want more information about building barn owl houses,、uh, go to that、uh, booklet that Rachel was talking about called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, and you can find it at the UC Ag and Natural Resources catalog. If you just do a search on Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, I'm sure that would pop right up. They're amazing hunting creatures that can help you control the rodent population on your farm or rural area. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Woodland, thanks for telling us more about barn owls. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, let's delve into some email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Steve uh, writes in, he says, I was given a load of eucalyptus wood chips from a local tree trimming crew. Can I use them around fruit trees? I was concerned, says Steve, because of the oil in them, and I don't usually see any growth under eucalyptus trees. Uh, Yeah, let's clear up uh, some of the uh, misconceptions about eucalyptus. Uh, One of the reasons, in fact, the primary reason why you very seldom see other plants growing beneath eucalyptus isn't necessarily because of the oil in the leaves. It's because of all the leaves themselves, the litter of the leaves, the dense shade that those evergreen trees provide, and the surface rooting nature of eucalyptus trees. And that doesn't leave much room for any competition. Now, about those wood chips, it should be okay to use. I, just if you want to be on the safe side, you could let them sit in a pile for a couple of months first. But uh, there is nothing wrong with eucalyptus wood chips. They'd be fine. And, and let it steam for a while first. And generally speaking, there isn't much of a problem uh, with using uh, eucalyptus wood chips uh, as a mulch around your fruit trees. But again, any mulch that you apply beneath a fruit tree should not be allowed to touch the trunk of the tree. There are some questions about how far away do you push away that mulch in the wintertime around citrus trees because you want to keep that area as warm as possible. Heat emanates from the soil at night, helping keep the understory of that citrus tree a bit warmer at night. It might provide one, maybe two degrees of insulation, if you will. And there are those who say, well, you know, maybe... Keep that mulch maybe pulled all the way back to outside the canopy of the tree. Well, I don't think you need to do that, but maybe a foot or two clearance away from the trunk of the tree would be okay. And you never want to pile mulch up against the trunk of a tree. This is one of these bad habit rabbits that I think uh, started back east or in the Midwest, where during the wintertime people would pile up mulch around tree trunks. And out here, all that leads to is rot. So you never want to do what's called the volcano effect of creating a mulch volcano around a tree trunk. Always keep that mulch at least a few inches away from the tree trunk and preferably away from the crown of the tree. The crown, again, is that area where the roots and the trunk meet, that little flared zone at the base of the tree. And you don't want to cover that area up. So just keep that mulch a few inches away. And you can keep it four to eight inches thick all the way out to beyond the canopy of the tree. And that should be okay. December and January, again, are the times when a frost is most likely. It could happen, even though that TV weather person may say, yeah, the low tonight will be 35 degrees. Where you are, it may be a bit lower. And the only way to know that for sure is to know your own local weather. And uh, if you have a, a homemade weather station or a home purchased weather station and it keeps track of temperatures you have a pretty good record then of just how low it gets and you can compare that to the temperatures you might hear on tv which are usually taken taken from the downtown sacramento uh, location of either the station or the national weather service the other option is just visit the national weather service website which is forecast.weather.gov And you can click on the seven-day forecast, and then you can pinpoint the area that you want the forecast for uh, on their map. It's a nice little sort of Google-style map, and you just 
you can zoom in and basically put it right at your location, right at your house address if you want, and it will customize a weather for your location. Now, it doesn't obviously know what the weather is in your backyard because of microclimates, but it's going to be more exact than using the temperature from the nearest city, which may not be anywhere near you. So check that seven-day weather forecast from the National Weather Service, as well as their tabular forecast page. It's one of my favorite pages at the National Weather Service site because not only is it pinpointed, it breaks down the weather hour by hour. If you click on the tabular forecast tab at the uh, bottom of the seven-day forecast page at the National Weather Service uh, forecast site, you can see temperature readings, dew point, wind chill, surface winds, wind gusts, sky cover, precipitation potential, relative humidity, rain, snow, freezing rain, sleet, whatever, on an hour-by-hour basis for 48 hours at a glance. And you can even take it out two days at a time. Now, the problem with going out two days at a time, the forecast gets a bit more iffy. But generally speaking, most National Weather Service forecasts are pretty right on for at least 24 hours. And if you're involved in outdoor activities, like as a bicyclist, I'm always concerned about the wind. So I'll check the tabular forecast page and see which hours are going to be the least windy and sort of gear my ride around that. Now, uh, it's, of course, you're not going to be bicycling in one place, so that wind may vary. All weather is local, just like all gardening is local. But it can give you a pretty good idea of what the weather is going to be. So I really recommend that tabular uh, forecast page at the National Weather Service along with their seven-day forecast page. And again, the website to visit forecast.weather.gov. It's your tax dollars at work, and they're doing a fine job of it. So you may want to check that out. All right, uh, more email. Who's this from? Dorothy writes in and says, My navel oranges are ripening. However, in the process, they are splitting and opening like clams. What's going on? Well, that's not an uncommon thing, especially after drought or rain. And this is a problem that started months ago. You didn't see it. It's showing itself now. Splitting oranges are usually due to stress to the tree, usually a combination of fluctuating temperatures, humidity, soil moisture, and possibly fertilizer levels. And, of course, the drought, too. Um, Even though we had a nice year of rain, uh, there's still that drought that that tree's trying to contend with, even though it may or may not be over. There are people at UC Cooperative Extension who have studied the problems of citrus split uh, very extensively, including Pam Geisel. And Pam says that when hot weather is combined with high winds, navel orange trees become drought-stressed and begin to take water from the young fruit, causing the fruit to soften and the leaves to cup. If the tree is then irrigated heavily, the dehydrated fruits swell, causing them to crack. Young trees are dwarf varieties with relatively small or shallow root systems, as well as trees grown in very sandy or very porous soils that don't retain moisture well, may be more susceptible to fruit pruning, or fruit splitting, rather. Backyard gardeners, you want to help minimize fruit split in navel oranges? Pay attention to the summertime weather forecasts. When those hot winds are predicted, 
And again, go back to that tabular forecast page at the National Weather Service. When the hot winds are predicted, irrigate before the winds begin. After the hot winds subside, irrigate lightly for a few days and then resume a normal irrigation schedule. By the way, adding four inches of an organic mulch to the surface beneath the tree can also moderate soil moisture loss. Also, it feeds the soil and controls weeds. Now, in terms of fertilization, Pam Geisel also advises that instead of a single large application of quick-release fertilizer each year, smaller monthly applications through the growing season, which in our area is about February through May, can help keep the nutrient levels constant, as can that layer of mulch as well. Uh, my old pal Lance Walheim, who's written uh, several books on citrus in, and uh, raises, uh, has about 17 or 18 acres of rare citrus varieties down in the uh, Visalia area. He says that a good watering pattern for oranges includes adjusting it to the weather. Allow the top three or four inches to dry before irrigating deeply. And he explained to me that uh, too much water retards the spread of the roots and promotes soil-borne diseases. An orange tree that gets too little water will grow poorly and may die. Keep an eye out for the signs of moisture stress on the orange trees themselves, including foliage that starts to wilt or becomes off-colored. Now, of course, uh, if you ask some uh, citrus growers uh, how to fertilize, you ask 12, you might get 12 different answers. So basically, whatever product you choose, read and follow all label directions when it comes to uh, fertilizer applications. And there, as I said, there are many of good fertilizers out there, complete and balanced organic fertilizers, some that need only to be applied a few times a year. But again, um, follow the label directions. Now, Lance Walheim also told me against uh, don't fertilize oranges after the end of summer. Late applications of fertilizer to trees that are really in need of fertilizer, if you do it too late, in the year, and that's the end of summer, that can lower the fruit quality, make the rind tougher, and exposes new growth to the ill effects of a winter freeze. And uh, there are no pests or diseases that cause splitting, nor is there a chemical control for it. It's a problem that stems strictly from environmental or cultural conditions. You can blame the weather. Next year, just mulch, water, and fertilize that navel orange tree correctly to help minimize the fruit split. All right, time for me to get on out of here, making room for the news. Then it's time for the KSTE Farm Hour. I hope you'll stay tuned for that. I appreciate your support all these years. Don't forget there is a podcast available for this program. You can find it at uh, streaming anytime you want it at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app. If you want to download it to uh, use it for when you go into the root cellar to uh, check on your onions, uh, well, I tell you what. You can download it from any number of third-party podcast aggregators, including iTunes. You can find direct links to Get Growing, the KFBK Garden Show, as well as the KSTE Farm Hour at FarmerFred.com, right there near the top of the page. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again next Sunday morning, 10 a.m. to noon, right here on Talk 650 KSTE.